Well, we're talking this morning, as we said at the very beginning, that this is a celebration of Christ the King. And as I was looking at the scriptures that are related to the Christ the King Sunday, the scriptures this week are Matthew chapter 25. And that seems like a really odd, odd passage to look at when celebrating Christ as the King. But I wanted to, I'll give you the the one verse that really makes it legitimate. (laughs) Um, as As a good one to do as Christ the King. It says... Um, verse 31 of chapter 25 when the son of man who we understand to be Jesus when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne well only one person gets to sit on the throne and that's the king then you go on beyond that before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right and goes on into the other stuff. And then verse 40 says, and the king will answer them. So this passage is talking about Jesus being the king. Christ the king. So there you go. It's a totally logical and legitimate passage of scripture for Christ the king. But what in the world does it have to do with the kingdom of God? And what in the world is the kingdom of God? I mean, Jesus said the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. Okay. The kingdom of God is like a great pearl. Okay. The kingdom of God is like a treasure that a man finds buried in a field and he goes and hides it again, and then raises all of his money, gathers it up, and buys the field so he can own the treasure. Okay. What is the kingdom of God? And then if you look at the prayer we just prayed. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. What are you praying for when you ask that? Let your kingdom come, O God. What are you actually praying for? Or are these just words that you were taught as a child and you memorize? The book is too big and the time is too short for me to go through all of what it means to be the kingdom of God. But in Matthew chapter 25... The writer of this chapter, who I assume is the Apostle Matthew, um, gave three specific parables talking about the kingdom of God and what it's like. The very first one, if you look at the first part of this chapter, the very first verse of chapter 25 says, Then the kingdom of heaven, which we understand is another way of saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And you know the story. I don't have to read through this whole section. What happens? The ten bridegrooms all have with them what? Lamps. And they also have with them oil. 
Only how many have the extra oil? See, you know the story. We don't need to read it. What happens when the bridegroom is delayed? Five of them start running out of oil. So what do they say to the ones that have the extra oil? And what do the ones that have the extra oil say? They're good Christians. Of course they share. They don't? These good Christians don't share their extra oil? What do they say to these foolish virgins? Go get some of your own. I can't spare any of mine. And then what happens while the virgins are gone? The, the foolish virgins. The bridegroom comes. And then what happens? And? Exactly. Listen to what Elsie just said. Verse 10, chapter 25. And while they, the foolish virgins, were going to buy their extra oil, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. So what does this passage tell me about the kingdom of God? There is a point where the door is going to close and no one else gets in. I don't like those words. See, God is a loving, compassionate, merciful God. Of course everyone gets to come. Of course. Not according to the word of God. According to the word of God, you have to have a relationship that is ongoing. You have to be waiting, watching, and prepared. And we don't have time this morning to talk about what all that means. And you need to have an, a, a complete and full uh, uh, reservoir of oil. And again, we don't have a lot of time this morning to go into all of what that symbolizes. But there is definitely a point where people who are foolish and careless, if you will, about their intimate relationship with God will find themselves locked out. And there will be no amount of pleading and no amount of pounding and crying that will fix that. Because if I take you all the way down to the last part of this, of this chapter, you'll see that those who are locked out have wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yes. I don't like those words. This is the 21st century. We are inclusive. We are tolerant. We want our God to be accepting of all, regardless of who they are or what choices they make. And when I speak these words in this room, it's okay because we're all followers of Christ. But if I were to take these same words and speak them at the community center or at the store or in Fred Myers, I would have eggs thrown at me. Or at least I would have angry people speaking harsh words at me saying I was intolerant and I didn't show love. I can't explain why these are the rules. I can tell you these are the rules. There is going to come a point in the, the timeline of the kingdom of God when God is going to say, all are welcome and I'm getting ready to shut the door. Come on. And what I would submit to you is those who are foolish and off getting more oil, it's in my mind what it is. It's not that 
the Holy Spirit ran out, it was that they didn't tend their lamp. Okay? Just because you ask Jesus into your life when you're eight years old, and then you go to live like the devil for the rest of the time you're on this earth, doesn't get you a free ticket into heaven. There has to be an ongoing, intentional walk with God where you are cultivating and, 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 and doing all that you, and I hate to use the doing word because now it sounds like it's a works salvation, and I'm not saying that at all, okay? We are saved by the grace of God, okay? We are saved by the grace of God. There is nothing you can do to earn your salvation. But once you're saved, there are things to do, Okay? Do you hear the difference? Just because you are saved doesn't mean that you don't have an assignment from God following that point. And one of those assignments is to continue in relationship with God. To walk with Him on a daily basis. To listen for His voice. To be attentive to your relationship. To tend your lamp. There's another part in Scripture I want to say it's Ephesians. I don't have it written down, so forgive me if it's wrong. But it says, you are children of the day. You are children of the light. Do not walk in darkness. And that's the same idea of tending to your light and continuing in an intimate and, and, and close relationship with the Father. Now, again, we don't have time this morning to go verse by verse through this entire chapter. Let's move on to the parable of the talents. Uh, again, just a recap. There are three servants. There's one master. The one master's getting ready to go off on a trip. He turns to his three servants. He says, here are some of my possessions. I want you to keep, safeguard them for me. And he turns to the one and he gives them how many? Ten talents. And he turns to the other one. He gives them how many? Five talents. And then the last one he gives? One. And then he goes off on his visit. And he comes back from his trip. And he brings in those three servants. And there is an accounting that takes place. What did you do with what I gave you? And the first servant who had received the five came up and says... I did work for you, God. And look, you now have ten. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And the second guy, emboldened, seeing what happened, comes up and says, I only got five, but I doubled it. I got you ten now. And he said, enter into the joy of your Lord, good and faithful servant. And then the last one goes, I, I, I knew that you were hard and that you were really, and so I just didn't want to take any chances on losing your property, so I buried it. But here it is, safe and sound. He said, you couldn't have at least invested it and got some money through the bank? What a lazy guy. Ridiculous. Out. And literally takes from him this amount of money and hands it to the one who knows he can trust, the one with ten, and he says, you, out. You're no longer part of my house. Go. And literally, again, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does this say to us about the kingdom of God? Because if you look in the verse uh, 14 of chapter 25, it says, for it will be like. Well, what is it? It is the kingdom of God. 
So for the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who has these servants, blah, 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 blah. So what does this tell us about the kingdom of God? Again, in my mind, we are saved by grace. There is absolutely nothing you can do to earn your salvation. But once you are in right relationship with God, God has expectations of you. God gifts you with abilities, talents, skill, experience, wisdom, whatever the case may be. Not everyone receives the same thing, but everyone receives. And everyone has the expect, I mean, everyone has an, God has an expectation for everyone. Okay? Imagine if you were a parent and you had three or four children and you could see each of your kids were at different stages of their development as human beings. And each of them were gifted in various ways. So say you have two of your three of your four children who are gifted when it comes to art. And say you gave an assignment to your four children. And you said to your four children, your grandmother's coming next week. And I want each one of you to make a sign to welcome your grandmother to our home. And we will post them on the front door when she gets here. And so the two kids that are not gifted at all with much art talent are still expected to make a poster. And when mom sees the poster or dad sees the poster and looks at it, there is an understanding that the child does not have a gift for art. But was the child obedient? Did the child do the best that they could? Well done! I am so proud of you. You did a great job. Let's put it on the door so that when grandma gets here, she can see what a great job you did. Now, is that piece of art ever going to make it into a museum? No. But the child did the best they could with what they had. Now, the other two, one of them is faithful and does what mom says and produces this gorgeous, dropped, three-dimensional, beautiful picture of welcome to grandma. And mom looks at that, or dad looks at that piece and says, oh my word, this is amazing. You did a fabulous job, and we're going to post it right up there on the door with the other two. But then the fourth kid walks in and goes, here you go, that's the best I could do. And the parent looks at that and says, I've seen you do better than this. And I'm not accepting this crap. Do it right. Do what I told you to do. I'm not putting that on the door. Now, is the parent acting in a loving way by saying that? Of course the parent is acting in a loving way. Why? Because the parent knows that the child has the ability. And the child, in deliberate, willful defiance, went... I'm just going to throw something together because I don't have time or want to do what I'm being told to do. And the parent holds the kid's feet to the fire and says, you will do what I told you to do and you will do it to the best of your ability and this one isn't acceptable, do another one. Ouch. See, that doesn't smack of love and tolerance and acceptance, but it is a loving act of a loving parent. 
Because it, the parent does not hold an impossible standard to one who doesn't have the ability, but the parent knows the ability and says, you are going to do the best you can with what I've given you and what your, what your assignment is. And so what we hear in this story is the kingdom of God is a loving master or a loving parent holding the standard and not letting it slip. And when a person refuses to do what they're expected, then there is a penalty that has to be paid. And the danger, if we want to really get into the Wesleyan Arminian theology, is that you could possibly lose out on your ability to have a relationship with the master because of your willful disobedience. That's right. We won't go there at this moment in time. But just understand that the virgin story tells us that the door is open for all, but there's going to come a time when it will shut. The parable of the talents tells us we have a loving Heavenly Father who has gifted us, but there are expectations of us performing as part of the family of God. And there is an expectation that you will do the absolute best that you can. And nothing less is acceptable. And if you willfully, defiantly say no, there will be consequences. This is the kingdom of God we're talking about. The last one, this parable of the sheep and the goats. In in this particular story, and, and... You don't need to, 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 we don't need to read through the whole thing to understand. In this particular story, it says, the the, the son of man, Jesus, is going to sit on his glorious throne. And at that point in time, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. So, A, is Jesus on a glorious throne right now? No, he's seated by the right hand of the father. But he has not been crowned king of kings and lord of lords yet. So the timeline of God's kingdom is this is a future thing. So this is not something that has happened. This is something that will happen. Number two, what's going to happen in this future place when Christ is crowned king of kings and lord of lords? In my mind, from other parts of the scripture, I can understand and know that there's going to be a resurrection of all human beings. And they will all stand before this judgment seat of Christ. And Christ will then separate them. And what is the delineation? What is the line that decides whether or not you are in right relationship with God or not? And this is what you need to write down. Look in verse in chapter 25, verse 35 and 36. You will find six words. And you need to write these down. <clears throat> For I was hungry... Write that word down. On your card. Oh, did I not give you the cards? Oh, I was so focused on giving you your pencils. Okay, take a moment to take a card. Sorry. (laughs) See, I gave you something, but you didn't do what I told you to do. (laughs) All right. So your cards are coming. Write the word hungry down. Hungry. You don't know how to spell it? Look it right there in the verse. And Jesus said, or the king said, I was hungry and you gave me food. 
The next part of this verse, Jesus said, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. So write the word thirsty down. Jesus then said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Write the word stranger down. Verse 36, I was naked and you clothed me. No more pants. Naked, write the word naked down. Hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked. Then he said, I was sick and you visited me. So write the word sick down. Then finally he said, I was in prison and you came to me. Prison is the word. So the words that you should have written on your card are hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, prison. Now, this prison thing, I did a little bit of reflecting on that for myself. Even as a pastor, in 14 years of ministry, I have only had opportunity to go into the prison because someone in my community who needed me to be in there with them, it only happened maybe three or four times in a 14-year span. So the likelihood of me going into a prison to minister to someone who is incarcerated is small, and it's probably even much smaller for most of you. That doesn't mean that some aren't called to prison ministry, but the reality is the bulk of Christian uh, community doesn't necessarily get called to go into the prison. But what about the ones who are in a homebound situation? Are they not just as much imprisoned? They can't get out because of physical disability? They would love to get out, but they can't. So, as I was reflecting on this, the Lord gave me this insight that, yeah, I may not be called necessarily to prison ministry, but I most certainly can go knock on somebody's door and sit with them and spend time with them. I can most certainly make a phone call if I can't physically get to their place. So I can still connect with those who were in prison. Because it's what does it say? I was in prison and you came to me. Doesn't say I released you from prison, but I spent time with the one that was in prison. Now, the righteous said, verse 37, the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. And this is what I want you to hear. This is the truth about the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, the king said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. I don't know if you've ever done any reading about um, the life of um, Mother Teresa, but Mother Teresa's whole ministry was to touch the lives, physically touch the lives of the ones that no one else would touch, the untouchables. 
the ones that were covered in leprosy, the ones that were covered in vomit, the ones that were just disgusting, that had no one to care for them. They would go into the streets and care for them and and carry them into the home if they had space. Otherwise, they would just touch them out in the streets, but they would minister to them. And I've read story after story of where literally just holding the person as they died. And that is the idea, in my mind, of what this is talking about. This, Mother Teresa's words when asked, why do you do this? Is, I'm doing it as unto Jesus. Let me tell you a story. I have to be careful because this is being recorded. And I don't have the permission of the person who I'm going to be talking about. So I'll do my best to not identify them. Early in my ministry... I had a situation where we had a family that lived in this community that was in very dire straits. They had physical problems, financial problems, uh, literally mental illness problems. And I was called as the pastor of our church, is there any way your church can help us? And so we began helping. And when I say we, it was pretty much me. There was a couple people in the church that I called on and asked if they could help with certain things, but pretty much it was me on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. Um, one of the things that was a struggle for this house was they had a number of dogs, and their dogs were right outside of their door. It wasn't a dog yard, but it was a number of dogs tied up just outside the door of their cabin. And um, Bob Sugden, not Pastor Bob, but Bob Sugden, the human being, gags with dog poop. It's just the way it is. I can't stand the smell of it, and if I step in it, I want to vomit. It's everything in me to keep from vomiting. And so I'm trying to assist this family who cannot of themselves clean up this disgusting, vile, nasty pile of crap, literally, in front of their door. And I go to help them one day, and my foot steps on a pile that's sitting on plywood, and it goes out from underneath me, and I go down. And at that point, Pastor Bob gets lost completely, and Bob Sugden comes out and says, Until you clean this disgusting mess, I will not come back to this house. And I walk, and I come back to this place and try to get clean up, and I'm... The whole time. And someone from this church heard about what happened. I don't remember how, but they went and cleaned it up. And to this day, I weep when I remember that because I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And I laid down a line in the sand to this family that had great need and they couldn't do it either. But I wasn't going to violate my sensibilities. I wasn't. And someone else in my congregation 
showed me how to be Jesus to those people. And I won't use the word shame, but it sure feels like it. They didn't intentionally try to shame me, but the Holy Spirit said, what, you're too good to do that, Bob? No. Then why didn't you? Because, not a good enough excuse. To this day, there's nothing I can do to go back and fix it. There's nothing. I can't fix it. And I did go back after it was cleaned up. I, I went back and I worked with the family for a number of weeks after that. So I can't say that I stopped working with them or stopped helping them. But I drew a line in the sand because I wasn't crossing that. I was not going to deal with that. And the Lord had to deal with me over my arrogance and over my who do you think you are, Bob Sugden? You're too good. And it makes me sick to my stomach even now to think about it because it is a very shameful thing. And I know that I've confessed it and I know that I have been forgiven and I know that when I stand before the King of Glory, there will not be a separation of sheep and goat, and I'm going to be called on account. Because that's already been dealt with and covered by the blood of Christ. But I never, ever, ever want to have to be called to account on that again, or anything like that. I hope and pray that I have learned my lesson, that there is nothing below me that I should say, well, I'm just too good to do that. Whatever God puts before me, I just need to do to the best of my ability with a sincere heart of intending to bring praise and honor to God. If you look in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, may your good deeds be done before the the humans that you're in community with so that they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'm giving a really lousy paraphrase. But but basically what he's saying is everything that you do out in the world needs to be such that when people see it, they think about God and they give him glory. Now, I can't understand why God would ever want me to clean up dog poop again. And I pray that it won't happen. But the reality is I live in a dog mushing community. I'm not saying no, I'm just saying please no. (laughs) But you need to understand, I, I needed to understand who I was as a human being, what my issues were as a human being, and not allow that to become a hindrance to the glory of God and the advancements of the kingdom of God. Okay? Because I am... And I'm not saying this because I'm so wonderful and glorious. I'm a prominent person in this community right now after 14 years of service here. If I had pulled something like that this year instead of early in my ministry. Now, let me turn the tables. Let me turn this finger back and point it back out into this place. Look at those six words on that card. Do you know anybody in this community that's hungry? That's thirsty, that's naked, that's sick, that's homebound, 
Or maybe even there are people in this community that God has put in your path, but you've never taken the time to get to know, and they are a stranger to you. Why are you not ministering in the name of Jesus to those that he's given you? See, the kingdom of God is being in right relationship with God, not so that I can get into the door before it shuts. The kingdom of God is about having gifts and talents and experiences that God gives to me for his glory and not just holding on to it and saying, thank you. I've got this really beautiful voice. Thank you, God. I'm really talented. Thank you, God. And the kingdom of God is not earning my salvation because it's by grace and grace alone. But once I am in right relationship with God, there's an expectation that as a child of the household, I will fulfill my duties. And that may include cleaning up the dog yard. And so my question for you as we close our time of, of the sermon and enter into this time of communion is as you are serving in the kingdom of God and as you are saying, you are Lord, you are my king, I love you, I worship you, where are you not doing what you are supposed to be doing? And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to keep you aware. You see, one of the things that the board and I will be talking about over the next number of months is this vision that God has given me for this congregation and this community. And one of the things that I feel strongly about is that we as a congregation need to be intentional about being involved with compassionate ministry to the Two Rivers and Pleasant Valley area. What is that going to look like? I haven't a clue. But even while I was on vacation, this congregation, you may, you don't even know anything about it, but the board will find out about it this afternoon. This congregation bought $50 worth of diesel fuel for a family that lives on Bote while we were gone on vacation. Because I got a text message, I mean, I, I got an email through our church's website that said, we live on Bote and we don't have heat and haven't had heat for three days. Is there anything your church can do to help us? Well, I was on vacation. I wasn't looking at email. But the Lord said, look at your stupid email. Okay. And there it was. So I was able to contact somebody in this community and say, hey, I'm out of town, but would you be willing to meet with them up at the Pleasant Valley store? And I've already made arrangements at the Pleasant Valley store, and they're going to... Oh, Tanya, we got to write a check. <laughs> we'll talk about it this evening. <laughs> oh, rats. <laughs> I totally forgot. But anyways, but my point is this. There, that was one example over the last month. There has been at least three or four times over the last month, even while I was gone on vacation, where God specifically used this congregation to minister to the needs of this community. And it's just mind-boggling, the, the need that's out there. But it's not my job to tell you what you're supposed to be doing with the gifts and talents and resources that God has provided to you. You're supposed to be watching for those opportunities. My job is to equip you. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm telling you, you have a responsibility before God. I'm giving you some clues as to what to watch for. Hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, stranger. What was the other one? In prison, homebound. So, I'm giving you those tools, but it's up to you now to start watching and seeing, Lord, what do I have that I can do? For example, Kathy, here's a wonderful thing that you could do. And I know you'd go, ew, 
But what if there was a family that couldn't afford a funeral service, but they were asking if you could do the makeup and hair for their dead mother? Ew. Ew. But wouldn't that be an incredible, glorious blessing to use your gifts and your talents to help a family that was grieving? Now, I'm not saying you should open up a ministry like that, but think outside the box, folks. What can you do to advance the kingdom of God using what you've got? And you, the other thing is, and again, we're going to be talking about this more and more in the, in the coming months, but you don't need to go out and make something up. You don't need to go and create something and then hopefully it'll be, God is going to bring to you the needs. You just need to be watching for them and ready and able to do whatever it is that God's presenting to you. And the end result is, God will receive the glory and the kingdom of God will be advanced. And the ultimate end is, when you get standing before the throne of God, he'll say, come on, sheepy sheep, welcome, good job. And you won't stand there going, I'm sorry I didn't clean the dog yard when you asked me to. Anyway, I've talked enough. Let's pray.